Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world, our culture, and the stories we tell, as well as the ones we're drawn to. This week, we begin with award-winning science fiction author Sophia Samatar, whose latest book departs the genre of imaginary worlds and dips into a little-known chapter of history, one that resonates with her own. Producer Kimberly Winston brings us this story. Separatist religious groups like the Mennonites are often hiding in plain sight. We think of them mainly as living in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, any farming community where their plain dress and low-tech ways tend to keep them under the radar. But Mennonites and other Anabaptist groups like the Amish are a global community. No one personifies this more than our guest, Sophia Samatar. Her American mother was born into the Mennonite faith, and her Somali father converted. Then they raised their daughter together in Indiana. Samatar is primarily known as a science fiction writer. Her books and stories have won both Hugo and Nebula Awards, but her most recent book, The White Mosque, is a departure. It's a memoir of a pilgrimage she made to Uzbekistan to explore the history and mystery of a small group of Russian Mennonites who followed a self-proclaimed prophet into the unknown to await the return of Jesus. Along the way, Samatar discovered a spiritual link to the people who lived this footnote in Mennonite history and a renewed sense of belonging in her own Mennonite world. But first, we have to do a little Mennonite 101. The Mennonite faith is an offshoot of the Protestant Reformation that originated in the Netherlands, Many early Mennonites were persecuted and executed for their beliefs and are considered martyrs by today's faithful. Mennonites are Anabaptists, which mean they, like the Amish, reject infant baptism. They abhor all forms of violence, a tenet that came into play with the Uzbekistan Mennonites. I spoke with author Sophia Samatar, who teaches at James Madison University, from her home in Virginia. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to Inspired. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sophia, tell me about how you came across the story that forms the core of the White Mosque. So I came across this story um, when my father-in-law gave me a book. And it's a history by a historian named Fred Belk. And it's called The Great Trek of the Russian Mennonites to Asia, 1880 to 1884. I was fascinated by this story of this group of Mennonites who left southern Russia, so what's now Ukraine, and migrated to Central Asia, what's now Uzbekistan, in the 19th century. I am Mennonite, so is my father-in-law. That's why he gave me the book. Um, I grew up with a very Mennonite education. I went to a Mennonite high school, Mennonite college, and somehow I had completely missed this story. 
And so it was both the story itself, but also the surprise of coming across something so new that I'd never heard of that was the first thing that captivated me. Mm. So give us a little bit about this story in a nutshell. I just thought it was fascinating. So it's happening in the 1880s, and it's a time when Mennonites are leaving Russia anyway. Large number of Mennonites, most of them came to the U.S. and Canada at that time. And that's because they had had an agreement um, with the Russian government, the Russian authorities, that they would not have to serve in the military, which is a key um, principle of Mennonite uh, faith. And, uh, and that special dispensation was revoked. And so they were leaving. Most of them were going west, but there was this other group that went east. And they were led by a very charismatic preacher named Klaus Epp Jr., who prophesied that Christ would return to meet them in Central Asia on March 8, 1889. He actually very specific. had it down yeah. to a date. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's why they went. Mm -hmm. So they go on this trek, they pack it, they sell everything they can possibly sell, they pack up everything they can possibly pack up, and they begin this months long journey across country and they see some of the most amazing things. What must it have been like for them? The only thing I could think of as I was reading the book is like going to another planet. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was certainly an extreme change for them. And of course, for them, you know, the key thing was not, it was not an interest in Central Asia. It was that this was the location of the coming of Christ. But certainly those young people who went on this journey, they left records of their amazement at the desert and going to the city of Samarkand, um, mm. the fantastic kind of minarets and tiles and all the different food, the sort of large round bread that they ate. They'd never seen bread like this before. All the fruit, they wrote so much about, you know, the plums and apples and cherries. Mm -hmm. And then all the languages too. I mean, this is the old Silk Road, right? This is a trade route. So it's it's traversed by all different kinds of people, all different kinds of ethnic groups. Mm. And the journey itself was very arduous. Most of the children died. Am I correct? Yes, yes, yes. Especially young children, children under four. And they left sort of like a trail of children's graves. It was heartbreaking. Mm. And when they get there, uh, they're in an, a Muslim country, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And tell me who they meet with to get permission to settle. Yes. So... Again, this is before the establishment of the modern country of Uzbekistan. So the mm. place they went to was a Khanate. It was the Khanate of Khiva. And so the Khan was the leader of the place. And that is who they, they petitioned for the right to stay there. So they are granted the right to stay there. And the first thing they build, of course, is a church. And it's white. And now we come to the title of the book. Tell us about the, why the book is titled The White Mosque. Yeah. So along with just my, my surprise in coming across this story, there was another aspect of it that was very important to me. And that was that this is a story of this early moment, 19th century moment of Mennonite Muslim interaction. 
And that stood out to me because my own family is Mennonite on one side and Muslim on the other. And so I just thought this is so compelling the way that these people lived together, made a life together. And these Mennonites had a village in the middle of this Muslim Khanate that lasted for 50 years. And I came across a photograph. It was taken in 1932 by a Swiss traveler who came through the region. And it was a photograph of this whitewashed building, the Mennonite church, which at least according to the first version of the story that I heard, gave the village its name, which is Akhmetchet. And a literal translation of that is the White Mosque. So to the local population, which was largely Muslim, um, this church was a White Mosque. And I loved that image of this kind of blending of faith, of identity in the symbol of this building at the center of the village. Mm-hmm. So they build their village and they wait for the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Well, you won't be surprised to learn that Christ <laughs> didn't come. <laughs> Once they had suffered this disappointment, many of them left. Many yeah. of them said they were finished with this place. They were finished listening to Klaus Epp, this preacher. Um, and they moved you know, to the U.S. and Canada, most of those, or they returned to Russia. Um, but there were others who stayed. And that to me is where the story really becomes interesting. It's most interesting to me to think about, you know, how do you, how do you go on? How do you continue once you've experienced this loss that absolutely, you know, just kind of sh- would have shaken the foundation of, of everything that they knew? And a number of them did. And they remained there in that village. Um, until they were deported by the Bolsheviks in 1935. So Klausep recalculates, and again, Jesus does not come. Um, and as you said, they're deported when that exemption is revoked. That's sort of the end of the bride community, what they call themselves the bride community, as in like the bride of Christ. Yes. Now, that's just part of the book. The other part of the book is you make, I would call it a pilgrimage, Mm -hmm. to the White Mosque. Now, how did that come about? Well, so once I had become so interested in this story, um, I started researching it, you know, and I was reading the histories and reading all these memoirs. And eventually I, I thought, you know, I really, in order to write about this, I really want to go there. I want to go to Uzbekistan. I want to get as close as I can to this place and just, you know, experience it for myself. And I found that there was a Mennonite heritage tour of Uzbekistan, which actually follows the path of these people all the way to the village of Akhmachet as it is today. And in 2016, I went on that trip. And so that is the frame of the book. The book opens, I'm in Tashkent, I've just landed, I'm about to start this journey. And then each chapter is a different place along the way, um, all the way to Akhmachet. What was it like to be in the footsteps of your spiritual ancestors who not only represent the Mennonite part of you, but also 
by the fact of where they were and the relations that they had with the locals, the Muslim part of you. It was just a fantastic trip. Um, one of the things that really struck me um, and was something of a of a surprise, a very welcome surprise on the trip, is um, the interest that this story holds for people in Uzbekistan today. Even for Mennonites, this story is quite obscure. Uh, and so I didn't expect that there would be anybody, you know, locally who was who was interested in these weird people who, you know, lived there for 50 years and then disappeared. Um, but in fact, there is quite a bit of interest. When we went on this tour, we had a couple of Uzbek leaders who took the trip with us. One of them is a historian um, whose father is also a historian and is writing a monograph on the Mennonites in Russian. So these are people who are actually experts in this history. And when we got all the way to Akhmachet, we found that in Khiva, which is the, the closest city, there is a Mennonite museum. The archivists there have collected documents, photographs. They have recreated um, Mennonite clothing of the 19th century from photographs and have, you know, kind of like dressmakers, dummies standing there wearing these clothing, this clothing. It's just an amazing um, care that is being taken with this story. And what we found was that there was a great deal of sympathy from our Uzbek hosts for the Mennonites because these were people who had been deported because they refused to cooperate with the new Bolshevik government. They refused to collectivize. They refused to give up their school and they refused to give up their faith, which of course was, um, was outlawed by this new Soviet government. And our Uzbek hosts in their families had experienced things that were very similar because they were also forbidden to practice. They were forbidden to practice Islam for, you know, generations. They, um, they were not allowed to keep their schools either. Um, their Muslim schools that they had at the time. And so there was a real feeling of kinship between the people that we met in Uzbekistan and these, you know, Mennonites who had lived among them. How did being on this Mennonite heritage tour um, affect your own personal faith journey? What did it do for you as a believing Mennonite? The big change for me came in um, the question of my strange upbringing and background. I had always grown up thinking that and, and being received by other people as quite odd. So my mother is a Mennonite of Swiss German background from North Dakota. She grew up on a dairy farm. My father was Somali and grew up in Somalia, had gone to a Quranic school, was his first school. And these two people got married and had me. And this story has always, you know, when I tell this to people, people are just like, what? Like North Dakota, Somalia, like how, you know, it just is so, it just kind of is a little bit mind blowing to people. And when you um, have your whole life, you know, the reactions of people around you being, you know, quite extreme when you tell them who you are. Um, clearly, you know, it can give you a sense of, of 
sort of not belonging, of being very strange, of being, um, of being an outsider. And when I went on this trip, it was really eye-opening to me to see how much this Mennonite story, um, which I had never known growing up, was completely interwoven with a Muslim context and with Muslim stories and with Muslim people. And it just kind of flipped my thinking away from, you know, everybody else is normal. Everybody else is one thing. And I'm weird because I'm this combination of things. No, I came away from this trip thinking, absolutely not. We are all, we are all a mixture of things. There is nobody who is monolithic in that way. And that was very important because I had grown up feeling, um, feeling often kind of a sense of not belonging among Mennonites, much as I, I felt I should have belonged being, you know, from a Mennonite family, going to Mennonite schools. I worked for a Mennonite organization for, um, for years, for nine years, you know, um, and yet, I, I always felt like I sort of didn't belong. And that comes partly because um, Mennonite culture in North America has a very kind of white dominant group. I mean, if you, if you think of Mennonite or you Google Mennonite and you look at the images, you're not likely to see a lot of people of color. So as a black Mennonite, I had always felt this sense that I didn't belong. But coming to the understanding that there, there is nobody whose identity is monolithic and singular just made me feel like, well, then there's no reason for me not to belong because actually everybody, everybody is strange and everybody has this kind of interwoven patchwork of experience. So did you come back with a renewed sense of belonging in this community? Did you come back with a deepened sense of purpose? Yeah, I definitely came back with a much more um confident and sort of settled sense of belonging. And you know, it's not that things have changed. I've always in any Mennonite context there there's, you know, usually a moment where people are like I'm, and I'm talking about the ones I've grown up in in North America. There usually comes a moment when people are sort of like, "Well, what is she doing here? Like, is she what it, what is her deal? Is she a convert? Does she work for us somewhere? Is she is she a recipient of charity? Is she somebody we're helping?" You know, and that's part of what gives has always given me that sense of not belonging. And I think the difference now is simply that I feel that I belong for myself. And so, um those reactions to me become sort of, they, they just become no longer sort of really hurtful and debilitating, but more almost um, humorous, a little sad, but humorous in a way. Producer Kimberly Winston continues her conversation with Sophia Samatar, the author of The White Mosque, after this short break. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, we've been listening to producer Kimberly Winston in conversation with an award-winning science fiction writer, Sophia Samatar. Samatar's latest book, The White Mosque, is a departure from the speculative fiction genre. Instead of creating other worlds, Samatar takes readers back in time to a chapter of Mennonite history from the late 1800s when a group of German Mennonites left Russia with an apocalyptic mission into present-day Uzbekistan. There was this group that went east, and they were led by a very charismatic preacher named Klaus Epp Jr., who prophesied that Christ would return to meet them in Central Asia on March 8, 1889. Herself a Mennonite woman of color with extended Muslim family members, Satamar was immediately drawn to the story because it was one she'd never heard before during her 16 years of Mennonite education. As we get back to the conversation, the focus shifts from what Satamar learned about herself in the process of writing this story to lessons that she sees in the present day. There's a, a more than one point in the book um, where you say something along the lines of the the phrase Mennonite writer is an oxymoron, that Mennonites and writing somehow don't mix. Tell me why that is. That surprised me. Yeah, well, and it, it, it is something that I um, I don't actually think is true. But it is something that I have grown up hearing and reading. I'm not sure I would say if it is changing, but I would say that it has changed. I mean, there are, you know, a couple of generations now of very prolific um, Mennonite writers, um, people like, you know, 
in Canada, people like Miriam Taves or in the United States, like the poet Julia Spiker Kasdorf and, and others, it doesn't seem contradictory anymore. So this is, I think, by my count, your fifth book. Am I mm-hmm. correct? Fifth yeah. book. This book is quite a departure from the previous four books. Um, you are well known as a science fiction slash fantasy writer. So how was writing this book different than world building? And did what did you learn from the process of writing in this genre that you may take to the other genre? Well, yes. When you write fantasy or science fiction, you do world building. And when you write nonfiction, you do research. So either way, you have to figure out what is the world that you are writing in. And either you have to go and look it up or you have to make it up. And in my previous books, I would make it up. And for this book, I had to look it up. But, you know, there is also a parallel between them, right? Because in both cases, it's not, there's no story that that can kind of exist without context. It's just a question of of where the context comes from. So certainly the fact that it was very research heavy, that was very different for me. I hired a fact checker, which obviously I have not had to do for any of my other books, because (laughs) if you're writing fantasy and you say something happened, then it happened. Um, But with this one, I'm now writing about the world that I share with other people. So there was a lot of, um, of that kind of work that needed to be done. Before the book was published, when I had the manuscript, I also sent it to all these people, sent it to my mom, to my in-laws, to my uncle, who's mentioned in the book, to all these different people in order to get their responses. And in particular, any, you know, corrections or things that they felt that I had really gotten wrong. Um, and that was also a brand new process for me. I had never, you know, had to send my book to 20 people <laughs> before it was published to sort of... um see how they felt about it. But that's, you know, I felt that it was important for this project. In my experience, there are many, many successful science fiction writers who are also people of faith. Is there some um, correspondence between having faith in things one cannot see and creating worlds and stories out of whole cloth? I think it's fairly clear that there is. I mean, certainly if we look at, you know, the tradition of um, fantasy, you have J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, right, at the kind of very fundamental to the modern fantasy tradition. And, you know, I think that your question actually suggests the answer. It is that people who are raised with the idea of belief in things that are not seen, of the possibility of miracles, of the laws of physics being overcome and transformed in some way. Um, such people have a certain context or a, a familiarity with thinking outside of everyday reality. And so, yeah, I think it, I don't think it's an accident. I think it makes a lot of sense that people who have grown up with stories of miracles and of things happening that 
were perceived to be impossible, um, it's not surprising that such people would be drawn to these kinds of stories. I know that your book, um, A Stranger in Olandria, and I think also the, wing, the Winged Histories, has some aspect of religion in it, that you created a religion for the world of Olandria. How does one go about doing that? And how does one go about doing that when one is a person of faith? Well, I did create um, a made-up religion for Alondria. I think the key thing is that I created more than one. So at the center of um, A Stranger in Alondria, my first novel, is a conflict between different ways of seeing the supernatural. So the young narrator who is the stranger, right? He doesn't, he's from a different country. He doesn't belong to Alondria and he is haunted by a ghost. And to him, this is absolutely horrifying because in his tradition, there is nothing worse than to sort of be pursued and haunted by the dead. But this happens to him while he's traveling in another country. He's traveling in Alondria, which has a different way of seeing this phenomenon of being haunted by the dead. They see the ghost as an angel. And to them, this is a spirit that should be, you know, should be cultivated and spoken to, and you should try to interact with it if you've been lucky enough to be visited by it. So you have two completely different reactions to the same event because these people have completely different ideas of how the cosmos works. And that's really, you know, that's, that's what's interesting to me is to see how can people then have conversations? How can you even talk, let alone decide what to do when you have completely different interpretations of the same thing? And that's, that's the challenge for those characters. And that's, that's what I was interested in exploring. And for me, that is what was served by making up these different religions. It was actually the importance of creating this space to explore the conflict between different ways of knowing and understanding the world. Mm. What does the story of the Mennonites who went to Uzbekistan have to say to us today? Not just to Mennonites today, of course, but to everyone today. I think that this is a story that has something to say about what makes a person's identity. I think that there is far too much attention paid to um, people's ethnic background as kind of the foundation of their identity. Identity is a story. Identity is a story that you tell yourself and that you tell in community with others. It's a story that can shift and identity comes into being in your interactions with other people. And what we see in the story of the Mennonites in Central Asia is the, is actually an identity in process. They had to shift their identity from being this, this special bride community that was going to be the first, you know, to, to be there to meet Christ. They had to completely change that story and become 
sort of a village of German speakers in a Muslim Khanate in Central Asia. That, to me, is what this story has to tell us. It expresses that our identity is not something that is fixed. It is something that is in flux and it is formed in community with all the different people that we interact with, the different foods we eat, the different languages that we speak or that we hear. Um, I think that is what's very powerful about this story and very important to think about in our current time. Sophia Samatar, thank you so much for joining us. This was just wonderful. Thank you for having me. Producer Kimberly Winston speaking with Sophia Samatar, the author of The White Mosque and five books, including the award-winning epic fantasy A Stranger in a Laundria and Monster Portraits. In addition to writing, Samatar is an associate professor of Arabic, African literature, and speculative fiction at James Madison University in Virginia. A link to her books can be found in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. Coming up, what does it look like counseling and supporting young men in a job that demands aggression, puts them in harm's way, and expects perfection on the football field? My conversation with San Francisco 49ers chaplain, Reverend Earl Smith, after this break. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short message. Stay with us. Thank you. 